This morning, though, we're in uh, Mark 12, 35 uh, to 37. Mark wrote this gospel uh, to encourage people to consider the identity of Jesus. If you were to ask sort of an overarching question, that, and it's the question Mark has been pressing from literally the first verse to the last one, it's the question, who is Jesus? Uh, in every single story, in every paragraph, that's what we're being provoked to ask. In some of the stories in Mark, that question seems as, as though it's more uh, in the background. It's more subtle than blatant. But there's other passages where it's just front and center. And you can't miss it. It's pressed right into the forefront of our minds. The text we come to today is like that. It just, you just can't miss that that's what he's drilling on. If you're a Christian, you are somebody who's sort of already crossed the Rubicon and you've decided, I believe what the scriptures say about Jesus. I, I know who Jesus is. And so you might feel today like you already know the answer to this big question that Mark is asking. And in a sense, you certainly do, or you wouldn't have responded to the gospel. And yet, uh, I hope today that you'll marvel afresh and anew at what this scripture says about our Savior and Lord, because we'll never exhaust, brothers and sisters, everything there is to know about Jesus. And the more we come to understand what the Bible says about him, the deeper we'll know him, and the more we can relate to and experience the salvation that he's given us throughout the day. And so I've just been praying that you'd be encouraged today and know Jesus even more. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, welcome. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, there is no more important question than grappling with who is Jesus. And you've come today in the providence of God uh, at a time in which there couldn't be a better time to pop into the worship gathering of a church because the, the entire passage, it, it's only four verses, only 66 words. And in 66 words, you really get a summary of the entire Bible. And you get a very clear answer to the question, who is Jesus? We're praying that God would show himself to you today through these words. And before I read it, remember the context. We are th three or four days away from the crucifixion of Jesus. And... We're on, the series, we're on the heels of a, a whole series of questions that Jesus was asked, most of them acrimonious, in which he's come into the temple and then all the religious leaders have conspired to try to trip him up. And in a line, they've come to him with questions. But Jesus has shown himself to be sufficient and prevailed in every conversation. And uh, like a shark sensing blood in the water. Jesus now goes on the offensive. He's been on the defensive all day. As people have come and they've asked him questions, he's uh, responded. But this time, today, he's going to be the one asking the question. One commentator I read this week said, uh, after a day of questions comes the question of the day. Verse 35. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? 
David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Well, that just clears it all up. This is a difficult passage. While it's not an easy passage, it does, in a very short amount of material, accurately and aptly express who is Jesus. It tells us exactly, actually. But we've got to do some work to try to come to understand it. And so I just want to go very slow and deliberate, verse by verse, and hopefully this will be a real encouragement to you. But it's going to require some, some thought. Jesus began in verse 35 with a question. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? How, how can they say that? It was a question designed not to trick anybody, but to warm up the, the scribes in the crowd. They're... They're they're there, they're not expecting him to be asking them a question, and he does. And he wants them to start thinking about, how does Messiah and David relate? It was a question designed to help them think about their scriptures, what we today call the Old Testament. Genesis all the way through to Malachi. There are many, many, many places in the Old Testament that say the Messiah would be a physical descendant of King David. The first time this topic ever comes up, ever came up in the Bible, was to David himself. And it's in a book called 2 Samuel. Now, I've pulled out one verse, and it'll be here on the screens. It says this, God talking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, meaning when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, at one level, that simply refers to King Solomon. So first, there was King Saul, the first king of Israel. He's not a good king. Then came King David. He was uh, a wonderful king on a whole, but he still made some very substantial mistakes. And so the promises in the Bible that there would be a perfect king who would rule over God's people forever, it became evident that's not David. And so the people began to wonder, well, maybe it would be his son, King Solomon. So Solomon came after. So on one level, this refers to King Solomon. But on another level, if you take that whole chapter in 2 Samuel and read it, which we don't have time to do today, but what you would find is it's very, very clear that it can't only be talking about Solomon. And so Let me pull out one verse that shows you that very clearly in the same passage, 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. And your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Notice those words, forever, forever, forever. That clearly can't be referring just to Solomon. Because if God promised David that his kingdom would be established forever, something else is going on in 2 Samuel 7. Someone else is being referenced. Are you with me so far? Okay. Now, 
as the biblical story moves ahead from 2 Samuel, and I understand that there are in a room this size with the diversity that we have, there are some people who know this stuff very well, better than me. You've been uh, thinking and pondering and reading about it for decades. There are other people who you're hearing this for the very first time. And what a, what a gift to be in a place like that, among the people like that. It's wonderful. And so uh, if, you f- if you feel like I know this stuff, then be praying for people who are newer to it. As the biblical story moves ahead from 2 Samuel onward, it becomes clearer and clearer over time that God's promising that there would be one who would rescue his people and who would sit on the throne of God's people, ruling and reigning over them, not for a short temporary time, but for the rest of eternity. And that somehow he would be a physical descendant of David, and yet also somehow he would sit on that throne forever. That's a head-scratcher. Like, how's that supposed to work? How can there be a descendant, a human descendant of David who would also reign unendingly? Well, one of the passages that gets at this the clearest in the Old Testament is one we typically only think of at Christmas. And so let's pretend there's trees and presents and eggnog and it's cold. Now we're really pretending. All right? So here it is from Isaiah. This is a prophecy about Jesus. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will rest on his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever, forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, as God's people experienced various forms of trial and hardship, they longed, they ached, they prayed, they yearned for God to fulfill that promise. God send us that one, one who could make us whole and put us at a place of peace. In Jesus' own day, the scribes, the crowds, any faithful follower of God, they were longing for that. And so when Jesus began with his question in verse 35, his goal was to drum up their thoughts about all these passages in the Old Testament that promised that. And so verse 35 is just just the warm-up, but it gets juicy in verses 36 and 37. That's where the the action is. And because it's confusing, frankly, it's like a a riddle. Uh, Let's read it again. Verse 36. David himself, Jesus says, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he son? Now, if that doesn't make your 
your head kind of go then I, I don't know what to do with you because that's confusing. But it's incredibly beautiful. Perhaps I could relate it in this way before we jump into it. Uh, there's some parents in the room. When you taught your kids how to swim, um, if you had the money, you did not do it yourself because you don't want that on your conscience, right? If you didn't, then you might have taken care of it yourself. And how do you teach a kid to swim? Well, a cruel parent might just toss the child in, but uh, th those not of that disposition. How do you teach your kids how to swim? Well, you start on the step in the shallow end, and you just kind of get accustomed to the water, and then you go for the next step down and the next step down. And then you hang out in the shallow end of the pool. Why? Well, you can stand. You're not going to drown. Your child might. And so you're standing where you can stand in order to help them. You're, you're in the shallow end of the pool. But eventually, you got to venture out where? In the deep end, where you can't reach anymore, where it's dark and scary. you got to get out there. This is the deep end of the pool, theologically. And so we got to labor to try to not drown in truth, but to see the brilliance and amazement of what's being said. So work at it with me. Jesus moved the conversation along by quoting from one of the Psalms, Psalm 110, verse 1. And so if you look closely at your verse 36, you'll see it's in quotation marks. That's because he's reaching back in the Old Testament and he's pulling that verse ahead and he's quoting it. Incidentally, Psalm 110 is the most quoted or alluded to verse or passage from the Old Testament in the New Testament. 33 times it comes up in the New Testament, far and away understood by the apostles and their associates to be the most important chapter for understanding Jesus. And so we're like down in the deep stuff. You don't have to got to throw it down because you're frustrated, Ryan. <laughs> so this is, we're, we're in the deep end of the pool theologically, okay? So Jesus quotes that verse. Now, this is a little bit of a side, but just spare me, uh, give me a little grace for a moment. Notice that little phrase where Jesus says that David, quote, in the Holy Spirit, end quote. What is that? Well, friends, that's a very significant little phrase because it describes what the Bible is. It tells us how the Bible came to be and how it works. You see, King David, a human being, sat down one day to write a song. And Jesus is saying that when David wrote that song, he did so in such a way that God spoke through him. He did so in such a way that the Holy Spirit worked through him such that his words were God's words. So that when we read Psalm 110, we're reading something that mysteriously David wrote, but he wrote because God said it. 
The scriptures, you see, are a divine human miracle. The Bible is God's word spoken by the Spirit through human beings. That's what we mean, incidentally, when we say that the Bible is the inspired word of God. We don't mean... Um, when people often use the word inspired to say things like, that, that book was so inspired. Or if you're, you're a hoity-toity, you like elevated food, you might say, oh, that, was a, that meal was inspired. Or if you're Josh Gent Stevens, you say, that was inspirational <laughs> about almost everything. When the Bible uses the word inspired, it's saying the Bible is God-breathed. It's God speaking. Friends, if you want to know what God says, what God cares about, how to be right with him, what he would have you to think and do and feel, you need look nowhere else than to look to the scriptures. This is how God speaks. It's not just that he spoke then, but that he's still speaking through it. It's a miracle. An important little phrase. Now, what is it that God said through David? Well, he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That is, David wrote that God said something to his Lord. That is, under the Holy Spirit's direction, David wrote a prophecy about the Messiah, his physical descendant. And yet David calls that physical descendant his Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, the punchline in this passage is verse 37. David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Now, some of this is just lost on us culturally because we're so informal. But here's what he means. David would have a physical heir, a son. And in the scriptures, you might say... um, even somebody that's three or four generations after you, if they're, if they're a descendant through your line, then you'd still call them your, your son. That's different than the way we would speak today. But notice even in, in the, the, the word, so I'm thinking of you, Pat, you've got a son, but you have a grand son. So that's the, that's the sense of this, that there would be a son, eventually, through his line, that would be the Messiah. That's great. That's clear enough. If you've been around the Bible very much, you're familiar with this. But the, the wrench here is, well, then, if he's his son, why does David call him his Lord? Church, people don't call their kids Lord. Sometimes people, parents treat their kids like Lord. Sometimes the child asserts him or herself 
as Lord. But you don't call your kids Lord. Why? No, all kind of reasons. But your, your child came from you. Your child is in the home. Your child is the inferior. You are the superior. You're in charge. The child's not. Your, your child obeys you. You don't obey your child. Incidentally, there's a lot of parenting things here. Okay? If the Messiah would be David's son, why in the world would he call him Lord? Nobody does that. And yet, that's precisely what David did under the direction of the Spirit in Psalm 110. Now, here's the crazy thing. These scribes knew their Bibles inside and out. Many of them, as I've told you in the past, many of them had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy memorized. Can you imagine? Their entire lives were consumed with studying the text. And yet, apparently, they never caught this. They never caught this conundrum right there in their Bibles. Now, if you've tuned out and you're bored, dial back in. Here's the point. Let me put it in two sentences. Here's what all this means. The Messiah is, in fact, the son of David. He's his physical descendant and thus a human being. That's one piece. I'll say it again. The Messiah is, in fact, the son of David. He's his descendant and thus he's a human being. But here's the piece they missed. The Messiah can't merely be the son of David. He's more than that. He is that, but he's got to be more. Otherwise, how would he reign forever? And that's, apparently, David had some sense of that, and so he called him Lord. Psalm 110 from then on is about a Messiah who would come, who would be a king, who would reign forever, who's also a priest. Now, if we put that more simply, Jesus is saying the Messiah must be both God and man. Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to do the work that he'd come to do. And it's right there in their Bibles. Jesus is not only the promised human Messiah, he's also God incarnate. No one was expecting that. And yet their Bible was telling them that's what was to come. Jesus the Messiah is the Son of God and therefore fully human. And Jesus is the Messiah as David's Lord and therefore divine. Jesus used the very Bible the scribes thought they knew so well. And in each of them, he took a stick of dynamite, stuck it in their ear, and lit the wick. Because this would have exploded their small, tiny view of Messiah. He's a man, a human descendant, and thus fit to die. And he's Jesus, divine, 
thus fit to rule forever. Now, Mark told us this right from the very beginning. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ means Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. And then the little phrase, the Son of God. It's right there from the very first sentence of Mark 1, verse 1. So who is Jesus? You've stuck with me, thank you. Who is Jesus? Well, according to Jesus, Jesus is both man, he's the Christ, and he's God, he's the Lord. Let me say it one more time. Jesus is not merely the human descendant of King David as Messiah. He's also God himself as Lord. Now, you've done the hard work. Give yourself a pat. But what do we do with this? I mean, beyond winning theological arguments, beyond nodding, okay, that's the orthodox understanding of who Jesus is. What's the upshot? How does it apply? When I was a a college student, um, I went to a secular state school in uh, Oklahoma. It was a tiny school compared to uh, the one we're in the shadows of. Um, But I majored in speech. I know it doesn't show, but I did what I could. (laughs) I majored in speech, and um, as a young man, Frankly, um, immature in my faith and without a lot of biblical knowledge yet, I used every opportunity I had in the speeches that were assigned to me to talk about something related to Christ. And uh, I was woefully unprepared for what I got in return. They filleted me over and over and over and over. And um, I was working full-time in a church, and yet I found myself increasingly struggling with doubts based on all the poking and prodding I was getting in the classroom. And one of the things I heard so many times is the Bible never says Jesus is God. Jesus never claimed to be God. There is no verse that says Jesus is God. He might be a good teacher. He might be a good man. But he is not God. And um, frankly, they just ground that down in over and over and over. And I was embarrassed a whole bunch of times by professors who were way smarter than me. And I didn't know my Bible. I wish I would have known these four verses it says it incredibly clearly. Jesus in one person is somehow fully God, fully man. The miracle of the God-man, he had to be that to accomplish what he came to accomplish. Don't let people tell you the Bible never claims divinity for Jesus. It does over and over and over and over and over and over and over. You just have to understand the scriptures on their terms. Like you don't call your son Lord. Why is he calling him Lord? 
Well, because Jesus is not a created being. He's always been. He rules and reigns as king. He's Lord. He's God. So what do we do with this passage? There's a ton of things we could consider. But I've tried to boil it down into two. This passage can feel so complex and otherworldly, we may struggle to see why it practically matters. And so I want to pull on two threads of implications, okay? One, primarily for those of you in the room who are believers, who have trusted Christ, who call yourself Christians and know him. And one for those of you who are not there, who are still considering what the scriptures say. For the sake of time, we'll just do those two. Now, let's start with the first one, the one primarily I want to speak to believers, fellow brothers and sisters. I'd get at it by quoting a theologian from the 1500s. He says, only he who is true God and true man could bridge the gulf between God and ourselves. Only he who is true God and true man could bridge the gulf between God and ourselves. Brothers and sisters, consider with me the significance of that. Were it not for the God-man, all would be lost. Were it not for God doing what God did in becoming a man, adding humanity to his divinity, all would be lost. You see, remember, the plight of people in our natural, fallen, sinful, helpless state is one of complete spiritual hopelessness. There is nothing a natural fallen human being can do to sort of try to claw back into a right relationship with God. It's not possible. It doesn't work. We all try, but we all fail at it. We are dead in our sins in this life and bound for eternal wrath and death in the next. This gulf was so vast there's nothing anybody could do. Because every person in their natural self is hostile to God. Even if that hostility simply looks like kind indifference, that is still a hostility toward God. And so consider the great wisdom and love of God in the arrival of Jesus Christ. Consider what he did to fix that. God the Father sent God the Son that by taking on flesh... He could start a whole new humanity who would relate to God in different ways because God intervened. This Jesus lived that he might perfectly obey in our place every moment of every day, loving the Father and loving people in perfection, facing every kind of trial and temptation that we do, and yet was without sin. He didn't linger on a thought, even, that would lead to sin. It's incredible. Can you imagine Jesus, 33 years, never a single time, needing to say, I'm sorry. I don't make it a half a day. And he made it 33 years. When we're in Mark 12, 35 to 37... Jesus can, can it, it, he's literally in the week leading up to his death. 
that God himself would stoop to take on flesh is something no human being would ever have thought up. And furthermore, that God himself would stoop to take on flesh so that in that flesh, he would then hang on a cross, becoming sin. That as a perfect sacrifice, he would bear and be the object of the wrath of God. That he would stoop to that is unimaginable. Were it not true, that's what he did. Consider how great the love of God must be for God's people that God would do that. It's an impeccable love. A love that's unshakable, unstoppable, eternal. Never to be broken loose from you, Christian, by virtue of something you do wrong. God loves you because he loves you. Nobody else loves you like that. He loves you because he decided, I'm going to set my affection upon you. How much security we have in the love of God. It's a love inexhaustible. Jesus died as our substitute in our place condemned. He stood. He took, brothers and sisters, what was rightly ours upon himself in order that he could give us what is rightly his, namely righteousness, right standing with God, a whole new beginning. Only the perfect combination of one fully God and fully man could do that. There is nothing more practical than knowing I can relate to God being in right relationship with him because Jesus is both God and man. And so, consider afresh and anew today the great love of God for you. And as you do, cling to him as your savior. Worship him as your God. Serve him as your sovereign. Run to him as your mediator. Share him as your redeemer. Obey him as your Lord. You need no one else. He is sufficient. Amen? This is the Jesus we know who is ever with us by the Spirit. Only he who is true God and true man could bridge the gulf between God and ourselves. Ponder that this week. Meditate on that. Chew deeply on it and live with a fresh awareness of the perfect love of God for you. Now, how about that other thread? Well, frankly, the other thread is darker and more difficult. To be in opposition to Jesus is to be an enemy of God. To be in opposition to Jesus is to be an enemy of God. 
Where do we see that in this passage? Well, friends, if Jesus had intended the scribes and the crowd to uh, only have an experience in that moment that's sort of puppy dogs and popsicles, only positive, then he could have reached back into Psalm 110 and only pulled forward the first half of Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord. That would have been sufficient. It made his point, I am God and man. That would have done it. The Bible often does that. Pulls part of a text. But Jesus chose in that speech to also include the rest of verse 1. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Why that ominous additional sentence? Well, friends, it's because to oppose the God-man, Jesus Christ, is to set yourself against God. To not take Jesus at his word that he is the God-man. To not see him as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. To not ultimately bend the knee and submit to him as Lord. Is to oppose not only Jesus, it is to oppose God himself. Jesus' enemies are God's enemies. Now for Jesus to talk about sitting at God's right hand, for David to have written that, that's a way of saying... That the power and authority that Jesus has, that he is acting on God the Father's behalf. And this phrase, putting his enemies under his feet, is very, very, very graphic. It has its roots in what a king would do when his army went to battle and they conquered another army, and the king died. Then in victory, that king would come out and would put his foot on the neck of the other king. It's a, it's a symbol of total subjection. Friends, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. When he comes back, that's what's going to happen. But at that point, it will be too late. And so, friend, if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you haven't confessed you've been living like you're in charge and now come to see that he's in charge and plead with God for his mercy and grace that Christ's death would be applied to you and that Christ's life would also be applied to you. Friend, you have clearly heard today who Jesus is. He is the God-man. The kingdom of God has come near in him. He is Savior and Lord. There is no one else to look to. He's it. By his death, resurrection, and ascension, he's now seated with the right, at the right hand of God. And so non-Christians, we would just plead with you, our friends. God's call to you today is to not clean yourself up and then come back to him. His call is not begin taking on a whole bunch of new habits, good godly habits, 
And once you become good at those, then I'll be interested in you. No, his call today is in, in all your moral and spiritual filth. Come to him. His arms are open. He's ready to receive. And you will be washed, the scriptures say, whiter than snow. God loves because he loves, not because one earns grace. Turn to him. Church, this passage teaches us that Jesus is not only the promised Messiah, he's also God incarnate. And we are his body. May we feel the marvel of who Jesus is. That we might worship him more passionately, submit to him more quickly, believe more fully of his love, and share him more diligently as our king. Will you stand with me? And let's pray. Before I pray for us, would you take a moment and pray yourself? Father, thank you for meeting with us today in your word. Thank you that you're not a silent God. You don't pout and withdraw because people sin. Instead, you lean in and pursue because you're merciful. And you, in, 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 in absolute brilliance, came up with a way to both address rightly, justly, our rebellion against you and simultaneously in your love and mercy and grace to bestow on us the honor of becoming yours. Adopted into your family, sons and daughters of God. How? By means of the God-man, Jesus Christ. We thank you for him. We pray when we say his name the rest of today and in this coming week, we'd say so with a fresh appreciation and vibrancy for his work, for his person, and for all that you've given us in him. And we pray, Lord, for anyone here who has yet to see and respond to this gospel, that today would be the day. And if they have questions remaining that feel like they prohibit that, that, Lord, they choose to engage those with friends, with whom they came with, with a pastor, and really get this settled, who is Jesus. We praise you. You are our king. In Jesus' name, amen. Good job, church.
hard passage. Go get a good nap for Jesus' sake. All right? For a benediction today, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 lines up so well. It says this, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work 